Our Father, we are thankful that we are able to come to the throne that we might find grace and mercy in our time of need. It is remarkable that we have such access to you. All that through the blood of Christ, we have an entrance into the very Holy of Holies. We are grateful that you You, you, you hear what we cannot articulate. Sometimes we're not able to quite say what we want to say. We're not even sure how to begin. But that's all right, because you get us. You understand our thought from afar. What a great Father you are. We thank you for your character. We thank you that you are good. We thank you for your holiness, for your absolute moral purity. We thank you that you loved us enough to send your son to die in our place. He took the, the punishment for our sins. It should have come on us, but he took it. And through his blood, he redeemed us and he has saved us. And for that, we thank you tonight. We all have many issues. We have many anxieties. We have many concerns. We cast all of our care upon you because you care for us. We're not in this by ourselves. You've got our front. You've got our back. You've got our flanks. The angel of the Lord. surrounds us. We ask that you'll open our hearts, give us teachable hearts, give each man from your word what each man needs. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. The Christian life is a journey. The Christian life is following Christ on a path, on a trail, the Lord is my shepherd. It goes on and says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. So we are Christ followers. And we are men. And that makes us leaders. Every man is designed by God to be a leader in some way, shape, or form. You may not think of yourself as a leader, but if you're a man, God has called men to lead the family, and God has called men to lead the church. So if you're a husband, you're a leader. If you're a father, if you're a grandfather, if you're an uncle, if, if you're a single guy and you got little nephews that look up to you, you're a leader. You're a man. Now, the Christian life is an interesting life because on this trail that we're on, there will be a time in your life following Christ where you're going to encounter something and it will stun you and it will shock you and it will um, 
blindsides you unless you have been in a church that teaches the entire Bible. A lot of churches don't teach the whole counsel of God. They just pick and choose. They just um, they cherry pick. They, they want to grow. They want people to come. They want people to come back. So they stay on certain topics. But Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Ephesians 20, he said, I did not fail to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Uh, we teach the whole Bible. And I hope you're in a church, if this isn't your church, that you're in a church that teaches the whole counsel of God. Now, if you're in a church like that, along the trail of life, when you encounter this particular thing that we're going to discuss tonight and next week, you'll be prepared to handle it. But if you go to a church that only talks about certain things that make people happy and certain things that make people think their lives will be pain-free and just full of benefit and full of God's blessing without any adversity, you're in trouble. If you just hear that God's going to bless you without any difficulty, you're going to be in trouble when you encounter this in your Christian life. What I'm referring to is the wilderness. And along the Christian path, as we follow Christ, God takes his men and he puts them in a wilderness. And he doesn't do it just once. You won't just hit one wilderness you'll hit many. It's part of the Christian life. The wilderness is a hard place. The wilderness is no fun. The wilderness is difficult. It's a struggle. It'll knock you on your tail if you don't know it's coming. So I want to talk about the wilderness because we've had a theme verse this semester, and the theme verse has been Proverbs 4.23, which says, guard your heart, for from it flows the springs of life. You can translate that, um, watch over your heart, for from it flows the springs of life. We're to watch our hearts, our minds, our hearts, our wills, our attitudes, our emotions. The heart, if you've been here, it's everything within you. It's the guts of you. It's it's you. Watch your heart. If you're not ready for the wilderness, it can do a lot of damage. But if you're introduced to the wilderness and you're taught about the wilderness, you won't be taken totally by surprise when God walks you into the wilderness. You look at any leader in the Scripture where we have enough biographical information to know how God worked in their life, and you will find that God led them into the wilderness. Abraham was taken into the wilderness. Joseph was taken into the wilderness. His wilderness was called a prison. There are all kinds of different wildernesses. Um, David went into the wilderness. He had to flee from Saul for 10 years. Jesus went into the wilderness. 
Just about anyone you can think of. Jeremiah was in a wilderness. God takes his men into the wilderness because he wants to prepare them to be his leaders. And there are lessons to be learned in the wilderness that can be learned nowhere else. Thirty-five years ago, I took a course from Bill Lawrence at Dallas Seminary. It was a, a course in their Doctor of Ministry program. Bill is a remarkable teacher. He's uh, still teaches, still active in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. He's in his 80s now. Over the last few months, I've come across three booklets that Bill has done. I quoted from one over the last couple of weeks, but I've been reading another one simultaneously over the last couple of months. Interestingly enough, it's called Wilderness Wanderings. What I want to do is just read the book to you, but I'm not going to do that. But he's got a perspective on the wilderness that is as good and thorough as anything I've ever read. I'm going to read you some paragraphs out of this tonight. But I'd like you first to turn to 2 Corinthians. Because we're going to camp in 2 Corinthians tonight and next week. We'll just get into 2 Corinthians tonight because... 2 Corinthians is the most autobiographical of all of Paul's letters. We get more insight into what was going on in his life personally than any other of his epistles. And, and in a sense, in a sense, when you read through 2 Corinthians, it's almost as though you're reading Paul's journal about his experiences in various wildernesses that God led him into. Now, there are other issues going on in 2 Corinthians, but as he deals with those other issues, he gives us a glimpse into the wildernesses, and notice that they're plural, that God took him through. The first one that he mentions is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. He's talking about a wilderness experience, doesn't really tell us much about it except to say that it occurred, it just about did him in, it taxed all of his resources, it was so bad, um, he despaired even of being alive, and this is the Apostle Paul. When I took that course from Bill Lawrence 35 years ago, I, I was in the middle of a depression that I've talked about in here that was, I'd never experienced anything like it. I wasn't prepared for it. I wasn't ready for it. I never saw it coming and hit, hit me like a ton of bricks. 
And it took me two, two and a half, three years to come through it. And in the first year of experiencing that, I came down and took this course at Dallas Seminary from Bill Lawrence. And his wisdom helped me greatly during that period of time. Paul here is talking about a wilderness experience. He goes on in verse 9 and says, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Now, I'm going to come back to this. But I want to go to Bill Lawrence's booklet because he does a good job of introducing us to the wilderness. And by the way, there are more wildernesses in 2 Corinthians that we'll look at tonight and next week. Bill says, what is this wilderness we face? In essence, it is a biblical metaphor for those arid, barren patches of life, whether spiritual, physical, or emotional, that God takes us to in order to test us, transform us, purify us, prove us, and prepare us for His greatness in our lives. Now, when we're young, we've got our plans and our hopes and our dreams, and we want to do something great. We've got plans. We, we, we don't usually say much about them, but there's something, you know, we, we've got some great plans, usually when we're young. When God takes us in the wilderness, it's because He's got plans for His greatness in our lives. And that's different than what we're starting out with. Back to Lawrence. It is in those hard moments in life through which we grow in God's hand according to His purpose. Sometimes His aim is solely to purify our character. Other times He wants to enhance a dimension of our competency. Still other times He acts to prove us, to show others that we are qualified for leadership. Always His intent for us is good, even when others intend evil, as in the case of Joseph. You remember that about Joseph. His brothers sold him into slavery at 17. They meant it for evil, and he said this to his brother years and years later. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good in order to bring about this present result. They sent him into a wilderness that he thought he would never recover from. Lawrence writes, Sometimes other people or events we cannot control take us into the wilderness. Loved ones such as our children, our aging parents, team members who create tension in our work, or a boss who impacts our career might unknowingly bring us into the wilderness. But you see, God oversees it all. But God's intent, whether you, if you're in a wilderness, whether you got there because of what you did or what someone else did to you, Whatever the cause, whatever the reason that you're in the wilderness, 
God intends it for your good. Lawrence goes on and says, now, what he's going to say here, remember our, our theme verse for the semester, watch over your heart, for from it flows the springs of life. Lawrence writes, the wilderness of life is God's cardiac clinic. The place where he takes us to transform our hearts in order to release our hands from the futility of self to the fruitfulness of grace. Once he transforms our hearts, because you see our hearts are all about ourselves, right? That's how we start out. We're selfish. It's all about us. We worship the God of self. We're into self-realization. We're into self-actualization. We're into self-promotion. We're into self. Once he transforms our hearts, what we do with our hands becomes eternally impacting through life-changing actions that bear fruit. So much of what we plan when we're young is utterly, in the big picture, worthless. He wants us to bear fruit for eternity. He has a section here called, Once is Not Enough. Our wilderness experience doesn't end after one time there. In some ways, we never quite leave the wilderness because God will not finish transforming our hearts until we are fully in his presence. So we continue in our wilderness struggles, sometimes with lesser intensity and sometimes with greater demand, uh, often returning to old places in the midst of our wilderness struggles that he has now made refreshing oases by God's good hand. Uh, at other times, we find new, barren, and fruitless places in our lives, places the Father has never shown us before, even though they have been a part of us for as long as we have been alive. It's sort of what God does is, as we walk with Him and we follow Christ through the years, it's, it's like peeling off the layers of an onion. He just keeps peeling. And... Sometimes he'll peel something off, and we, we honestly didn't know what was there, but it's there. And he wants to deal with us, and he wants to take us a little bit deeper, and he wants to mature us, and he wants us to take us to the next level. But you got to do a little surgery. When this happens, we know we are entering God's cardiac clinic one more time for heart surgery without anesthesia. And is that not true? There is no way to sleep through God's vein repair or valve replacements, let alone his heart transplants. We only gain the full benefit of his heart surgery when we enter into the pain and hurt we have brought to ourselves and others through our futile efforts to advance our cause in the name of Jesus. God is corrective, not punitive, in bringing us into this pain. He wants to redeem us. He wants to bring good into our lives. He shifts gears a little bit. The problem with younger leaders, or even with older leaders, who resist the lessons of the wilderness is that they don't understand how desperately they need the wilderness. Further, they don't understand the depth of our own spiritual blindness. 
the inner deception that prevents us from perceiving the assumptions and expectations that arise out of our uh, desperately diseased hearts. Until we have spent time in the barren and rocky places of life and entered into what this means for us, we don't realize the wilderness is not outside of us, but it's actually within us in our very deceiving hearts. Nothing we ever face is as deceitful as our own hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? It's so deceitful, in fact, that Jeremiah cries out, who can understand it? God answers, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. So he wants to do heart surgery without anesthesia. We experience the pain we turn from ourselves and we turn to him. The reality of what is in our hearts can only be revealed in the wilderness. It is God's great prep school. And then one more from Bill Lawrence. Because when you hit a wilderness for the first time, or even the second time, or even the third time. If you don't have a grasp that God is at work, your heart and your mind can really deceive you. Because when you hit a wilderness that you don't see coming, It is very, very easy, if you don't guard your heart, to find yourself in devastating disappointment and in self-pity. He addresses this. We end up in self-pity when we think we are all alone and that everything is up to us. Little wonder, because God's call is overwhelming and we are inadequate. But we need to understand that God doesn't tell us everything that he is doing. He wants us to trust him even when we think we're the only ones left standing. You see, God doesn't tell us what he's doing until he does it. When you're in the wilderness, and we'll get to this in a minute. If we need to know, he tells us, but only when we need to know. Otherwise, he wants us to trust him and stay focused on him and not ourselves. Now watch this. When God wants to change our psychology, our thinking, watch this. When God wants to change our psychology, he changes our theology. What you and I need is a renewed theology that puts him, not us, at the center of our lives. A theology that recognizes his sovereignty, that he's calling the shots, his faithfulness, his grace, and power to do what we cannot do. We desperately need this truth and trust to deliver us from the quicksand of self-pity. If you know that God is in charge of your life when the rug is pulled out from under you and life makes no sense, if you know that, you're going to stabilize much faster than the one who goes to a church and this is never addressed. 
This is why we're talking about the wilderness. When you face a wilderness, and again, the wildernesses are everywhere in the Bible. When you hit a wilderness, inevitably there are three questions that you're going to raise. And remember, this wilderness, it can be, uh, it can be financial. How many guys have I talked to who got cleaned out, totally cleaned out in 2008? Lost everything. Uh, for some, it's financial. For some, it's unemployment. For others, it's emotional. It's a depression you can't get out of. Or your wife's in a depression she can't get out of. For some, it's physical. It's a sickness. It's an illness. It, it can be relational. It can be a marriage that's just tough and hard and not growing, and it can be a thousand things. When we hit a wilderness, three questions. Number one, why? Why am I dealing with this disappointment? Because when you're in a wilderness, there's always disappointment. Because your plans have been dashed. We, in, in, when we're young, we, we set goals and objectives, and we have hopes and dreams. Um, nowhere in your plan for your life did you factor in a wilderness. You just don't do that. I, I remember a few years ago, Mary and I had, you know, we've been married 40 years, but probably a few years ago, we just kind of hit a dry spot. We just kind of hit, you know, she was doing a lot of things wrong. <laughs> little, little humor there. I, I didn't get her perspective, you know. You know what I'm talking about. You have your ups and downs. It was just a dry spot. And I remember praying, Lord, you know, we're just... And up until then, things have been going pretty well for a year or two. And I remember praying, Lord, you know, it would probably be good if you could bring some kind of crisis into our lives. Uh, maybe take something away that we both value. Just pull the rug out from under us. It would draw us closer to you and closer. I never prayed that. And you haven't either. See, we, we got our dreams, we got our hopes, we want to fulfill our goals, we want to achieve our financial objectives, objectives, we want everybody healthy, we want everybody well, everybody's, we just want life to be good. When you hit a wilderness, it's full of disappointment because your, 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 your dreams can be dashed, your hopes can be crushed, it's not turning out, it's not even close to what you thought it would be. So you're asking, why? Why, Lord? I'm trying to follow you. What I'm going to read from John Newton, I read before in here, but it's so good, I actually carry it in my Bible with me. John Newton, the man who wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And he really was a wretch before he came to know Christ. 
He was lived in the 1700s. His father was a sea captain, was gone a lot. His mother was a godly woman. Um, as he went to sea uh, as, as a young boy, as they often did. Eventually became a captain, became a, a captain of slave ships and would transport slaves from West Africa down to the British West Indies. Um, he threw sick men and women and children into the ocean to drown. He committed rape. He was, he was a reprobate. He didn't know the Lord. He was hard. When you read his biography, other sailors, before he was a captain, other sailors did not want to work around him because his language was so vile. Now, that's something for a sailor. They were afraid that God would strike him. That's how vile he was. Then he became a captain. And, um, but the whole time, people are praying for him. And the Lord is pressing in on him, but he is hardening his heart instead of responding. At one point, this man who did horrible things to people from Africa became a slave to a black woman. Now, that didn't happen in the 1700s. She was married to a white sea captain on one of the islands in the Caribbean. Through an unusual chain of events, he wound up on the island. She enslaved him along with her other slaves who were all black. And she treated him so terribly, the other slaves would save little bits of food and smuggle it to him because they had such pity on how he was being treated. Did that turn his heart to the Lord? No. It wasn't until later that he came to the Lord. And when he did, God immediately took him into a wilderness. He was home. He'd come to know the Lord. He was reading his Bible. He was attending the church. He was growing, and he was reading. And, um, I mean, he was devouring the Word. He was just devouring it. He was studying. He went and took Greek so he could delve into the New Testament text. He was, uh, he was intoxicated with the Word of God. At a certain point, he was supposed to captain a voyage, and the night before it was to set sail, he got violently ill. Violently ill. Doctor said, he can't go. They put another man on the vessel as captain. They sailed off over the horizon, and as soon as they were out of sight, he got up and he was perfectly fine. What was happening is that in his heart, he didn't want to say this to anyone, he had a desire to become a pastor. But he knew he was disqualified to be a pastor. God began a very slow, 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 slow process. Slow. Slow. It's tough to read about it, let alone live it. Finally, when he became a pastor, 
not only did he preach and not only did he write incredible hymns, hundreds of hymns, he had a ministry of writing letters. His letters were so profound, I have volumes of his letters in my library. You can read them online. Letters of counsel that he would write to people who would write to him. Someone wrote to him who was struggling with deep, deep disappointment in their lives and asking God why. They had hit a wilderness. And here's his reply to them from August 17th of 1767. Newton writes, It is indeed natural for us to wish and to plan, and it is merciful in the Lord for him to disappoint our plans and to cross our wishes. It's a mercy for God to devastate your plans. For we cannot be safe, much less happy, but in proportion as we are weaned from our own wills and made simply desirous of being directed by his guidance. The truth, when we are enlightened by his word, is sufficiently familiar to the judgment, but we seldom learn to reduce it in practice. In other words, we might know this in our heads, but it's hard to put into application, he says, without being trained a while in the school of disappointment. <laughs> the schemes we form look so plausible and convenient that when they are broken, we are ready to say, what a pity. We try again with no better success. We are grieved, perhaps angry, and plan out another, and so on. At length, in the course of time, experience and observation begin to convince us that we are not more able than we are worthy to choose a right for ourselves. We think we know best, and we don't. Is it Proverbs? In Proverbs 16, you, you'll see the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You'll also see in Proverbs, in 16, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. So it is a mercy when God interrupts our plans, because how could we know best? We don't know what's best. I can hardly recollect a single plan of mine of which I have not since seen reason to be satisfied that had it taken place in the season and circumstance as I proposed, it would, humanly speaking, have proved to be my ruin, or at least it would have deprived me of the greater good that God had designed for me. He goes on and says, we're like a blind man trying to cross the street, and the one guiding us, we're telling him what to do. Step here, step there. No, I want to go here. I want to go there. That's utter foolishness. That's the way we are. So we ask the question, why? Why, why would God disappoint my plans? Because he has something infinitely better for you than what you can ever think or imagine. Number two, the next question is, when we hit a wilderness, the next question is, how long will I be here? This deals with duration. The first question, why, deals with the disappointment. Now we're talking with duration. How long will I be in this wilderness? 
Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed out that every season of wilderness has a beginning, a middle, and an end, but it's only known to the Lord. You won't be in there forever. But know this, see, once again, your, your uh, comfort comes from, as Bill Lawrence said, believing in the sovereignty of God. What does that mean? in his absolute control over all things, including your life and the timing of your life. Psalm 31, my times are in your hands. How, that means your time in the wilderness. How long will I be in this wilderness? Well, my times are in your hands. And then Psalm 138, 8 says, the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. When the Lord has accomplished what needs to be accomplished in your time in the wilderness, at that point in your life, when that's over, you'll come out, and you'll be better for it. The third question we ask in the wilderness is, how will I survive? Because when you get into a wilderness, God tends to take things away. As Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There are different kinds of wildernesses, as we have said, financial, relational, emotional, um, hundreds, thousands of them. But suffice it to say this, when you're in a wilderness, you're asking, how will I survive? Because when you're in a wilderness, you're out of options, you're out of resources, you might be out of cash. Here's something else that happens in a wilderness. You're alone, you're obscure, you're forgotten, you're humiliated. When you're in a wilderness and others know about it, even your friends will pull away. Not because they don't care or love you, but because they're, they are so mystified by what's happened, they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to help. And when you are in an intense wilderness, you will find yourself alone, by yourself, going one-on-one -on -one with the Lord. And you're asking, how am I going to survive this? Well, you'll survive it the way Israel survived in the wilderness. There were two million of them, men, women, and children, for 40 years. There were no Costco's. There were no ATM's. They survived because God gave them manna. No resources, no food, often no water. How did they survive? They never missed a meal. For 40 years, the soles on their sandals never wore out because God supplied manna. What is manna? There's all kinds of manna. We talked about this several years ago. Manna is a well-timed help from God for his people. A well-timed help, perfectly timed. In the Depression, maybe in your family, My grandpa was a preacher in a little church with four kids in the Depression. 
People didn't have any money for a salary. How am I going to feed these kids? Never missed a meal. Someone would show up and knock at the door. It, it's manna. It's a well-timed help. When you're out of resources, he is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the bread of life. No one wants to be in a situation like that, but if he puts you in a situation like that, you will see the reality of the living God. That he's real and his word can be counted upon and trusted. He is watching over his word to perform it. Read the autobiography of George Mueller, who raised orphans for 50 years in Bristol, England, and never asked for financial support. 2,000 kids feeding them, clothing them. Never asked for a dime of support. His biography's that thick. All you gotta do is just turn a page. It's his journal. Unbelievable. Now, does God call everyone to live like that? No, but he called Mueller because we can look at how God took care of Mueller. If God took care of Mueller, why wouldn't he take care of you and me in the wilderness? He will. And maybe you're in a wilderness and you've never been there before in your life. I lost all my retirement. I don't have time to get it back. Isaiah 46, 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and you remnant of Israel, you who have been born by me, born by me from birth and carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same. Even to your grain years, I will bear you. I have borne you, I have carried you, I will carry you, I will bear you. There you go. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians. And every week we have mentioned as we've looked at a different individual in Scripture, we have um, given an epitaph for that individual. And the epitaph for Paul in 2 Corinthians would be 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. What God does when he takes us into a wilderness, he makes us weak. We don't want to be weak. The last thing men want is to be weak. We want to be healthy. We want to be healthy financially. We want to be healthy physically. We want to be same way emotionally. We want our families to be. We want health everywhere. But oftentimes, in order to work in our lives, God will on purpose make us weak. We have said it before in here. 
there are three ways God works in an individual's life. You see it in Scripture all the time. God works sovereignly in every detail. Secondly, God works strangely. Thirdly, God works slowly, but He works. And isn't it true that He works strangely? That he would take God's plan is to take strong men, and here's the problem with being a strong man. When you're strong, you don't think you need him. So what he does, he allows us sometimes for our plans. We are, you know, we're taking off. We don't need the Lord. We're just going down the path of life, 190 miles an hour, thinking we know what's best. And at some point, we hit a brick wall. We wind up in a ditch. Everything's destroyed. We've ruined our lives. We've ruined the people we love. It's utterly destroyed. We'll never recover. We think we're finished. We think we're dead. And out of desperation, we call on the name of the Lord. And Ray Stedman said it all the time, resurrection power always works best in a graveyard. When you think you're dead, when you think you're finished, there's the resurrection power of Christ. He makes strong men weak, so they'll call on him. When I am weak, then I am strong. So we want to go to 2 Corinthians 1. We read it earlier. But I actually want to read the section just prior to what we read because it, it also speaks to what God's up to when He puts us in the wilderness. What I'm referring to, we read verses 8 through 10. But we need to read 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 7, because what we see here is the, is the benefit, if you will, of the wilderness. The benefit. 1 3, 2 Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Jason Meyer has written this in regard to the word comfort in this passage. He says, it is hard to overestimate the importance of the word comfort in this section of 1 Corinthians 1. The word only occurs 31 times with this meaning in the New Testament, and 10 of those occurrences are found in this paragraph alone. He says, men, this word is for you. 
If you prize strength, then you should prize this word. Comfort in contemporary English may sound soft, but comfort in Paul's day meant to strengthen. A return to Paul's meaning would actually take us back to the original meaning of the English word because it comes from the Latin root fortis, meaning to fortify or to strengthen. Biblical comfort is divine deliverance. Humanity despairs in weakness when we are utterly burdened beyond our strength. Comfort is a but-God moment of divine intervention. Now, let's stop right there. If you've ever been in a situation where you were completely and totally out of options, and you are beseeching the Lord, and you're laying it out before Him as Hezekiah laid it out when he was in trouble. I mean, you're out of options. You're pressed in, you're hemmed in, and there's no way out. And then, and you see no possible way. And then God comes through. God does something that you never, you never saw it coming. But he'll do something. It's a deliverance. It's, it's a mercy. It's, a, it's clearly from him. A lot of you guys know what I'm talking about. You were, you were dead in the water without hope. And he came through for you with manna at the last possible moment and saved you and rescued you. That's what he does. He's a savior. And by his intervention and by his mercy, which is a comfort, he strengthens you and he strengthens your faith. Now let's go back to this. See, there's a reason he comforts us, he strengthens us in our affliction. Look look at verse 4. He comforts us in all our affliction. We, (laughs) I can't move, so that we are able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. I'm... I'll just tell you this. It happened this week. I had a young guy send me a text that was, it was very nice of him to send me the text, and he was saying, hey, thank you for over the past years sending me those scriptures. I'm not sure I would have gotten through. I texted him back, <laughs> and, I'm saying, and I said, I'm glad I could pass them on. I was just passing on to you what had been given to me. You see how that works? It got me through, oh, this guy, oh, you're there? Well, well let me pass on what the Lord did for me with this verse. 
oh, by the way, what do you think he'll do with those verses? You, you know it's going to happen. He's going to pass it on to somebody else. This is what happens. You, you guys still here? You still with me? Okay. All right, now let's go to verses 8 through 10. Because in verses 8 through 10, 2 Corinthians 1, you've got the method of the wilderness, the method. There's a method to the madness of being in the wilderness. Okay? Verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves that we would not, watch this, trust in ourselves. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we tend to do? That we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Uh, there is a method here, back to Jason Meyer, his article here. He says, note the paradigm. In verse 8, you have desperation. And look at verse 8 again. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Uh, to despair is to be without a way out. To be in utter despair, out of options. It's, it's, it's utter desperation. So watch this, he says. You have desperation in verse 8, which brings dependence in verse 9. We had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That should be our dependence in the first place. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And the things that we do, the things that we accomplish, the skills that you have, the strengths that you have, the aptitudes, they're all gifts. They're all gifts, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And what do you have that you did not receive? You give Him glory. So we go from desperation to dependence that we not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, which leads us to deliverance in verse 10, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. So when you're desperate, utter, utterly desperate, and you depend upon Him and His Word, deliverance is on the way. That's how it works. 
which winds up in verse 11, a doxology, a, a prayer of worship. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. You got me out of this tight spot. You got me out of this difficulty. You made a way where there was no way. You see how this is all tied together? One more thing from Jason Meyer. He says, sometimes God's comfort rescues the believer out of affliction, while at other times the comfort sustains the believer in the affliction so that they can patiently endure. That's verse 6. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferers, sufferings which we also suffer. Sometimes you're in a, you're a tight spot, God delivers you, but you're still in the wilderness because there are more lessons to be learned in the wilderness, and the season is not up. You're just at midterm. But he'll be faithful, and he'll sustain. Who wants to go through the wilderness? Well, nobody. But there are tremendous benefits in God taking you through the wilderness. Tremendous benefits. Uh, you grow, you mature, you deepen. You learn to trust God. You learn to have a calm in situations where others are panicked. You learn to have a stability when everything is upside down because you have learned about the faithfulness of God. You've seen it. You've seen it. You've experienced it. One of the things George Mueller said when he started that orphanage, he was a pastor. And there was a great need in the 1800s in England. They had all these orphans because um, there was so much disease and, and parents would die and these little kids would be left. It was, it was horrific. He started this orphanage and, and he said, my primary, my primary purpose in starting this orphanage is not to help the children, although I want to do that and lead them to Christ and take care of their needs. But my primary purpose in starting this orphanage, and by not asking anyone for a financial support, but leaning solely on the promises of God, is to prove that He is still the living God. To prove it. And He proved it. But it's tough going through the wilderness. So you know what George Mueller would do? You know how he got through the wilderness? I mean, really, it was on a daily basis. You read his journals. And you can't read too much of it at a time. Because it's so, the pressure, the pressure of, of feeding and clothing those 2,000 kids. And I, I've been through that, that, bio, that autobiography and have marked it. 
there'll be points where he had 2,000 kids and, and he'll say, this morning our balance was three pounds. What was that, 10 bucks? I got 2,000 kids. And the coffers, the, the, the cupboards are empty. I mean, what would he do? He'd pray. He'd get up in the morning. He'd open his Bible. He'd pray. He'd, he'd go to the Lord. How did he get through that prolonged 50-year wilderness? Well, here's how you get through a wilderness. You get, you get through the wilderness, it requires getting a daily word from the Lord. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what he would do is that he would get up and he would read his scriptures and he would pray and he would set it out. Oh, and by the way, he kept a tally and he kept this journal. We, we needed three pounds, you know, four shillings, whatever it was. I mean, we, that's what we had. I got a note from our office that a gentleman in Ireland had sent a draft for 8,000 pounds. Or on another day, that a lady read of our work whose family had been greatly blessed and was struck by the passage where Peter said, silver and gold have I none. And felt led to sell her jewelry and send the money. I mean, it's just boom, 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 boom. And he kept a record of it. But he lived off the promises of God. Now, I, I want to I hone in on something as we finish. We live off of the Word of God because the Word of God is our manna. Let me show you something real quick in Psalm 130. The guy in Psalm 130 is in a wilderness. He's in trouble. He uses uh, the terminology out of the depths. He's in the depths. When you're in the depths, when you're in the ocean depths, there's unbelievable darkness and there's unbelievable pressure. And this guy's in it, and this guy's in trouble, and he's asking God to help. Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive. Look at verse 5. Oftentimes, when you're in the wilderness, you're having to wait because there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you're not you got to get through this, and you don't know how you're going to get through it, and you're waiting on God to deliver. It's hard to wait, and the longer you have to wait, the more desperate you can become, and the longer you wait, the harder it is to maintain hope. Look at Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait. Now watch this. And in His Word do I hope. Now here's what I want to camp on. We're living in a day where there are a lot of counterfeits in the church of Jesus Christ. And there's a counterfeit going around 
that is very subtle, but it's being practiced in a lot of churches who in their doctrinal statement will state, we believe in the authority of the Bible, that it is God's Word, the authority above all authorities, it is inspired, it is God-breathed. Yet in some of these churches, there is a movement and there is a phrase that is thrown around they will say, the Lord told me. The Lord told me. The Lord told me. What do you mean by that? Well, the Lord told me. I, I've, I've done this because the Lord told me to do it. And what they mean by that, uh, and let me say this, I'm not saying that the Lord can't counsel us and guide us in an abundance of counselors, there's wisdom, that he can't put something on your heart, or that a friend can't make a suggestion. I'm not denying any of that. But what's happened is there has become this, it's a counterfeit. A guy contacted me recently and said, I'm, I've started going to this church and you know, and he asked me about something, and I, I, I started looking into it. And I looked at the website, and I looked at where the pastor and this guy came from, and then I looked, I'd never heard of that school, and then I checked out and went, ah, oh, ah, oh, ah, oh. okay. Uh, in that church, and I looked at their doctrinal statement, we believe in the authority of the Word of God as God's, you know, revelation to man, da, 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 Okay. They have, a, they have a small group um, curriculum in that church that they want as many people to go through as they can possibly get to go through it. It's called How to Hear the Voice of God. That's how you hear the voice of God. Oh, 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 yeah, but I mean, I mean, I want a fresh word. This is living and active. It's not old, and it's not stale, and it's not dead. It's, the Word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and able to divide between joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no is hidden from his sight. There is power in the Word of God. But they want a word. And this is very subtle. And I remember a guy talking to me at a corner bakery. was having breakfast. He'd been to some deal I'd spoken at, and we, he said hi, and we started talking. And, you know, we just started talking and asking about his family. He said, well, my wife passed away last year, and I said, I'm sorry to hear that. And she, she died of cancer, and I said, my gosh. And he said, you know, that was so hard because we'd had a gentleman come to our church, and he had a ministry of giving a word from the Lord. And, uh, and in that church, they will actually 
do the same thing, how to hear the voice of God, and they will show you how to get a word from the Lord that you can give to somebody else, and they'll do it in the services without the Bible. Although they revere the Bible, they don't rely on the Bible. And he said, this guy was up there ministering, and I knew who the guy was. I'd seen him on TV. This guy's whole ministry was he'd play a keyboard and sing slow worship songs and kind of get him in a trance. And then he would have a word from the Lord. He didn't quote Scripture. It was just an impulse. And that guy had come to their church, and, and as he's telling me at Corner Breakery, he specifically told my wife that she was going to be healed from that stage 4 cancer. And he had tears in his eyes. I said, I'm sorry to hear that. He was a false prophet, wasn't he? And he didn't want to say it. He said, he was a false prophet. He never should have said that. That guy traveled all over the country. Recently, he died from the same cancer that killed that woman after two years of intense pain. How many people did he give false hope to? I wonder if he ever in his meeting said to someone, I have a word from the Lord. You're going to be dead in nine weeks. Now, I highly suspect that never happened because offerings go down. You're not invited back. They don't buy your CDs. They, you know, you can't run a ministry on that. We're to test the spirits. How do you hear the voice of God? By reading His Word. Again, I'm not saying that a believer can't come. I've had friends say to me, you know, Steve, I just felt like I had to share this with you. And I'll, I'll tell you this. I've seen this happen numerous times in my life where I've had two or three people that I know well and trust that have come and said to me the same thing. Not saying, this is a word from God. They just say, you know, I just thought I had to share this with you. Now, this is something you listen to. And you test it, and if it fits Scripture, great. But you see what I'm talking about? I'm talking about counterfeits. And we don't want to say they're counterfeits, but they're counterfeits. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, when I leave, savage wolves will come in among you. And savage wolves don't declare the Word of God. I'm going to tell you something. You're in a wilderness, you need the Word of God. You need verses to get you through that you hold up and that you cling to. There's your hope. In your word do I hope. That's how you get through a wilderness. If you're in a wilderness, don't close your Bible. Open it. Feed on it. Pray the Scripture. He'll deliver. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, for the power of Your Word. We thank You for the wilderness, as hard, as brutal, as difficult as it can be. 
It's where we really get to know you. It's where we grow. It's where we mature. It's where you peel back all of our self-interest and deception. And you begin to do the deep work in our hearts that make us more like Jesus. Thank you for the relief that you give us from the wilderness. There are times of refreshment. And we thank you for those times. And then we go back in because you want to continue to grow and mature us. For those who are in that spot now, give them great hope, give them great encouragement, give them great perspective, and show yourself strong on their behalf. The psalmist said, answer me quickly, I'm in distress. For those in that situation, you'll come through at the right moment. They can count on it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.